This Can Do Podcast is brought to you by Blake Albina Thoroughbred Services. Blake Albina is a full-service bloodstock agency and consignment company representing clients at every major horse sale in the country. For more information, call Ron Blake at 859-396-4836 or Hunsley Albina at 859-621-0800. Whether an experienced owner or a newcomer to the game, Blake Albina has the knowledge and experience to help you achieve your goals in the thoroughbred industry. I got the horse right here, the name is Paul Revere, and here's a guy that says if the web is clear, can do. Can do. This is Bill Duncliffe. I want to welcome you back to Can Do, the podcast about all things horse racing. Some history, some handicapping, and some humor. We're joined by a special guest this week. He is none other than Joe Steiner, a well-known jockey who plied his trade for 35 years with nearly 1,100 winners from almost 11,000 mounts in the Pacific Northwest, in Southern California, and in many other outposts, as we will hear in this interview. We fans of horse racing know jockeys, but to a certain extent, we really only know them skin deep. Rarely do we get to hear about how they got into this great game of ours and the sacrifices they make in support of our sport. Joe joined us on the phone to give us those insights and more. Joe also shared his own personal big score experiences with us. One about a memorable ride in an unimportant stake race, and the other, well, it's truly memorable and truly counts as a score. I think you'll enjoy both of them. But let's get started here and talk to Joe about the jockey life. So, Joe, I know you come from a racing family. You've got a long, uh, you know, we always talk about breeding and racing, and, and I, your grandfather and father and, and a lot of your family members were involved in racing, correct? Correct. Yeah, my, it goes back to my great great grandfather owned horses at Long Acres when it first opened, and my grandfather rode there. And, and he was son. It was that was my uh, his wife's father. But yeah, we go way back in the 1930s there, and obviously before that. But that's when the track opened in 1934, I believe. So my grandpa was racing in those years, and yeah, that's how that's where it all started with with my my actually my grandfather because he's the one that became a jockey and then led into a trainer, and then the you know the family all came along afterwards. And Joe, you actually got your start with a very famous jockey who took you under his wing at a very young age, right? Yes, matter of fact, I actually was around twelve years old, and I was working for my grandfather up at Long Acres. And in the morning, uh, here comes this little guy, and he was this, the same size as me. And actually, I was smaller than him. But I looked up, and I go, <laughs> he goes, uh, and he had a funny little voice and a, and a big bottom lip. I just remember him clearly I, to this day. I, he goes, well, when you learn how to ride, you come and see me. And his name was Johnny Longdon. So, and it's just funny how life works. And there are no coincidences how things play out, and, and that's you know that's it started at a young age there. And when I when I became 15, uh, my grandfather would take me to California, and we reconnected with Johnny Longden, and then he took me under his wing, and I stayed with Johnny Longden for you know the first couple of years of my career. Wow. Yeah, so wow. I ended up second leading apprentice of the nation, living in the tack room there at Santa Anita. Wow, but it's uh, times have changed, right? At age fifteen now, if that if that happened, they'd be calling child protective services, right? Saying <laughs> what is going on with this kid. So, uh, Joe, I I can't imagine at age fifteen what that must have been like leaving home and and being thrust into the I mean the Southern California racing scene, right? Which is a, a big one. You it had to have been 
kind of scary and maybe a little lonely at times. Yeah, you know, the funny thing was, I never was scared or lonely. My, and I know a lot of people that have ran back home because they got homesick and lonely, but I was loving what I was doing so much that I, I just, every day was, was heaven, working with Johnny, working with the horses. And, and at that point, you could, you know, call home, you know, once in a while. We didn't have the cell phones, obviously, and nowadays the access is so much easier nowadays. But, you know, I, I actually was so into what I was doing that, you know, I'd call home once a week, you know. And then later on when I got to riding, I'd call every day because then there's a lot more going on than once I was riding races. But it was, uh, yeah, I was very, very fortunate that the timing of that, the whole thing that how I met Johnny Longden and how he said as soon as I learned how to ride, come and see him. And sure enough, you know, I don't even know if he were to really think that would have happened, but here it did happen. And, and he took me under his wing and, and I ended up riding all of his horses. And, and fortunate for me, that time, he had some good horses. So I won, I won the North San Luis Obispo handicap on the turf at San Nito. It was a, it was a grade two at the time. That was my seventh winner. So, oh, wow. you know, for wow. a young, yeah. Yeah, young kid, I knew here I was riding with uh, Bill Shoemaker, oh, my Chris Aaron, Sandy Hawley, Lafitte Pinkai. There were ho- 15 Hall of Famers when I was riding there. And, and to me, I, I wasn't starstruck or anything like that because I just I started there. So for me, it was just the guys that I rode with. And, uh, and looking back, I, I just think, wow, was I. The timing of it all, it was, you know, phenomenal for me to experience that. Also, you know, it could have been a lot easier if I didn't have to experience 15 Hall of Famers all around me, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, it's interesting. I mean, you you obviously taken under under the wing of a Hall of Famer. Uh, and in riding in that colony, how much did they help you out, you know, with the learning experience? Or was it competitive, you know, outside and inside the jocks room? It, you know, it was competitive in the job. And we were all friends, but they would give you enough information to protect themselves. That's how I look at it because, you know, you don't want to give too much information to, to give your, your inner secrets to a kid that's going to maybe surpass you. So they would keep certain things under their hat. And, you know, now looking back that I, I realized that and I, I'm, the things I took in were, you know, my experiences with them learning you know, riding with them, and Johnny would, Johnny Longden would school me, you know, the other guys would, would, you know, little things here and there just to protect themselves, and, and I did the same thing as I started getting into my years, because, you know, you, you want to help the younger riders, and you want to help them become better riders and safe out there, and have that fine line that you can go to, what, you know, that, that you're not going to get someone injured or horses or people and still win the race and not get disqualified. So all those things you got to take into account. And yeah, no, so those guys, they didn't give me all their secrets or anything like that. I, I learned a lot just by riding with them. And Johnny's the one that used to really get on my case because even, even after I'd win a stake race at Santa Anita, everybody in the whole grandstand would be just going wild. Everybody around, except for John, he would say, you know, congratulations, but that was a horrible ride. I mean, <laughs> oh, yeah. And then, wow. so I always felt bad. You know, he two words could make could knock me down. So that's and that's the respect I had, and and that's a beautiful thing. I'm like I said, I'm I'm very blessed that I had that. Yeah, yeah, that's a really interesting perspective about them wanting to give you enough information to protect 
themselves. You know, you can see that in, you know, day-to-day business environments too. You know, older guys like me, I guess, you know, who want to help the younger guys but don't want to give their jobs away either, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I guess that's the way it, it works. It, it, Joe, something came up this week that was pretty interesting I was thinking about. You know, I, I know you still follow racing, and, you know, down at Gulfstream Park for the second year in a row, Luis Saez is just on fire, right? Everything that he rides is alive, and he's winning like crazy, right? Now, he is a good rider. He is a nationally known rider, but his success at Gulfstream is off the charts compared to uh, what he does at other tracks, right? And and again, he is a good rider everywhere, so I'm not minimizing what he does otherwise, but other places, but I'm also thinking about, like, Julian Leperu, who is also a good rider, um, for whatever reason, the last few years has really struggled at Saratoga, even though he has done well at other courses. So it's a long way of getting to my question. We always talk about horses for courses, right? Is there such a thing as jockeys for courses, too? Were there places that you rode that you were just more comfortable with, better at? Oh, absolutely. And it, it, it is, riding is, is mental. You know, riding is more mental than it is physical. Everybody thinks you got to be, you know, like in this, well, you do have to be in peak condition. I mean, that's, there's no question about that. That's, that goes along with it. But mentally, when you, when you're in the zone and, and certain tracks seem to be a little better for certain people, uh, same with trainers and horses. So yeah, it does go, I I always felt more comfortable at San Anita than, than anywhere. I just, I just, because I started there, I think it's, and that's probably what's going on with Saez and, and then the. It, it feeds off that also. I mean, it's from from you being in the right place and the trainers and the owners, and then it all kind of falls in place for that. You know, and a guy like Julian Leperu is just a, an a excellent rider anywhere he goes, but uh, obviously he's not getting opportunities. That's that's you know I'm not even watching, but I know I know how it works. So he's not getting opportunities that Luis is, and good for him. I mean, good for him because, you know, it's just his time to shine there and maybe he can take it somewhere else, but some, some guys can. And, you know, you, you've seen the, the guys that will be leading rider, even like at Turfway Park, which is kind of obscure compared to the, the rest of the big, big world tracks. And they'll go on to be leading riders of the nation and, and can move on. And that example of that was Julian LaPeru and Raphael Bejaran. Mm-hmm. Well, your point is good, right? Success breeds success, I guess, and it builds a confidence. And on that note, I know that you know since your retirement, I think you mentioned to me at one point, one of the things you do is you provide coaching for jockeys, correct? Correct. Yeah, and I'm actually just working with one jockey at this point, and he was leading rider the last three years in a row at Emerald Downs. His name's Rocco Bowen. Uh, a very talented rider and good, good guy. And I, I enjoy that because I can see things in in certain, you know, if you know, it, it all like in this case, he was open to me working with him and wise enough to realize that I could actually help him. But not, I can't help not not everybody. But there's certain people that you just click with in life, and I think I really enjoy that though because for me, I wish I would have had more of that. Going back to my career, I mean, I. I was going along and things were going well. Then my, my grandfather, who was one of my biggest coaches in my life, he suddenly passed away. And the, mm. and, and the funny thing was, the really funny thing was, not funny, is um, we had a sit-down talk one day and we were up in Seattle and the meet was just about to start. He, and he goes, we need to have a talk. He goes, I, I want you to just, I know you've never had anybody pass away in your life. And he goes, I think that, Johnny's and he's getting older and he goes, you know, you got to prepare yourself for something like this to happen. 
And, you know, and I thought, wow, yeah, that would really affect me. Really, it would hit me hard. And you know what? My grandfather passed away the next day. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And oh, my gosh. Suddenly, wow. And, and, I, and it was, wow, it hit me hard. And, I, and it took me a lot, you know, quite a while to get over that. But, you know, and, and you, need, you need that support as a rider because it's so mental, you know, to, to stay on a, a winning mindset and, a, and a, keeping your confidence up. It's, it's a roller coaster mentally to stay on that plane um, day in, day out. When you're, if you're not winning races every day, it just it plays with your head. And, and, you, and bottom line is it's what you did today, not what you did yesterday in, in the racing world. Tough crowd. So, yeah, so that, that for me was hard to, ha- to have that happen. Then I did lose Johnny Longdon. Um, but he, Johnny ended up living until he was 97. The son of a gun was as tough as nails. <laughs> he was a hard boot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's why I enjoy coaching because I'm, I'm able to kind of be the big brother and kind of, and, and, you know, help out and point out certain things that sometimes are, for me are common sense, but you don't see it when you're in it kind of thing. Now you don't give him the Johnny Longdon treatment and tell him that was a terrible ride after he wins a stake or anything, right? You, <laughs> you well, yeah. you're a little more supportive than that. Yeah. Right? No, I, I'm not as I'm not as hard on him as that, but uh, I do point out things. And, and, you know, as a rider, when you've ridden enough races, you know, you know when you did something wrong and when you did something right. And uh, it's as simple as, like, when you are you do get in trouble, um, you're very well aware of that, even though you got to play like you did, you weren't. So, you know, to protect yourself. But, there, like I said, there's a fine line. And, yeah, I, I enjoy that. I wish I had someone to stand by my side. And, and guide me. And, I, and that's, what I think, is what uh, why I ended up moving around so darn much because I kind of lost track. But it's okay. It's, that's all part of my journey, and, and, it's, and it's still going on, and that's a good thing. Well, you know, you bring up a, a good point, Joe. I was thinking about it as you were talking that, um, you know, we as fans, we tend to look at athletes and say, well, you know, they have a job to do. And, and that's how we evaluate them, you know, their job, right? You know, did they do it or did they not? And we don't tend to think about them as human beings like you know what they might have going on in their lives that we don't know about so i would imagine and i think you were kind of saying this and i I guess i just want to confirm it that you know after your grandfather passed that probably affected you for some period of time when you were out there riding too i would think right oh yeah it sounds like that's what you were saying yeah yeah no it it did affect me and you know i went on and and first horse that my uh, my brother became the trainer after my my grandfather passed away all the horses were transferred into my brother's name and the first horse that he ran was literally five days after my grandpa passed away and the horse won that I rode and we all cried and it was, oh it was, yeah, it was a tough period. I mean, I stayed in that zone riding wise, but I, I still needed that coaching. And that's all I was saying. And, you know, as, as far as a rider goes, you, you need to have that support and, and some guys have it naturally. I don't know. And certain people have this power inside, but I needed someone to help me kind of stay stabilized in, in that area. And that's where I feel like I could help this kid, and, and, I, and I have. So, and Joe, you mentioned that you traveled around a bit, and you told me one time, I forget how many different countries you've ridden in and how many different tracks you've, you rode at. Um, what were those numbers again? Oh, 52 racetracks I've ridden at. You know, in the States, mostly. I rode in Hastings Park, Canada. That's so Canada. And I rode in Saudi Arabia in Riyadh. Rode a Prince over there for two months. I was under contract for two months in Saudi Arabia. And that was one of the most incredible experiences. 
that I would never want to do again. <laughs> That's an interesting way to put it. Do you get to tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, no, it, every day was an eye-opening, uh, I can't believe this is actually happening. Because over here, there are rules and, and things are, you know, kind of done in a proper, strict kind of manner to protect the horses and the people and everything else. And the rules over there are not applied. And so things go on. And in, in just in life, for example, over there, it's, it's a whole different, a different world. And it just to experience that for me, it, it made me kiss the ground when I got back here. And it's still the same there. It's, to me, it's the land that time forgot. You, you really do appreciate the states. And sometimes we don't appreciate it because we're living in it all the time and all the things that are going on. But it really is, um, we're very fortunate here compared to, let's say, being there. So, yeah, that was an amazing experience. And every, every, every place I've been, there's been something good that I've taken from it. And, you know, that's that's the great thing. I, I wish that could have been just, oh, you see people, they grow up in one place and they stay there their whole life. And it seemed nice to, nice to me, but actually uh, my journey was meant to travel and experience and meet different people and, and different experience throughout. And I, I enjoy that, and I, and I find it rewarding. And now, you know, as, as I get older, I feel like I'm connecting certain dots from those experiences. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that because uh, back in our season one, uh, we interviewed Natalie Turner, who is now a marketing coordinator at Belterra Park in Cincinnati, you know, just outside Cincinnati. But she started out as a jockey, and she said almost word for word the exact same thing that you said about the experiences of foreign travel and how that helped shape her and helped her grow. That's really, uh, you know, and I think most of us don't realize how often jockeys have that. You know, I mean, you hear about the, the Johnny Velasquez, let's, but, you know, how many jockeys actually get to do that is, is, is pretty interesting. Like I said, it, it almost seems like it's a universal experience as far as the, the riding experience, obviously, but just the impact that it has on your life. So I, I know you talked about things that you took from it. It's, it. The game has taken some things from you too, right? I mean, you've had a number of surgeries, a number of broken bones, some quite serious injuries, right? Yeah, you know what? And, and that's part of the job. I have friends that rode for years and never had an injury, you know, no broken bones. And for me, broke 32 bones. And I've had and some just amazing experiences. I mean, I, I had a deal where I, I actually died on the table and they brought me back. No, you know, oh my God. I, I had a surgery on my neck and they, it was supposed to be a simple thing where I could come back to start riding six months after that. But it turned out I had, they had to put two spacers, a plate, six screws. And the doctor said I was done and I could never ride again because this, if I was to take a spill, I, I just wouldn't, I wouldn't be alive. But you know what? I, that was one of the hardest points of my life when, that, when the doctor told me that because I had never prepared myself. I, I felt as though I could ride forever because I just, this is my passion, this is my life, and this is who I am. Since I was five, this is what I wanted to do. Looking up at my uncle as a jockey, I, that's what I want to do. And here I was. And now it was pulled from me and I was kind of, that was one of my worst points of my life. But I actually got into yoga and got into really taking good care of my health and coaching a friend of mine actually what, how it all came about. But I got to feeling even better than I was earlier in my life. And I got on a horse one morning when I wasn't supposed to and, and I'm like, I don't care. This is, this is where I belong is on the back of a horse. There's no place like it for a, a person that rides and it doesn't matter whether you're a jockey or a, uh, anybody who rides a horse there's nothing that can take the place of being on the back of a horse when you become one with them so what I ended up doing is coming back to racing after working horses for Baffert for a few years and rode for five more years 
Joe, I, I think I can stay with confidence. You are probably the first guest and, and probably the last one that we'll have that would say they died on the operating table. You got to tell us a little bit about that. Oh, it, it was actually from a medication that they gave me, some sort of medication. They had overdosed me on something and I broke my leg. It was, it was just a broken lower leg. All I know is that the doctor, when I, they revived me, he said, can you tell me your name? And I, and I looked at him and I said, yeah. Jojo the dog face boy. That's, <laughs> that, that's, all I, yeah, that's all I got back, you know. So it, it, it was actually kind of a funny thing. It is funny. Yes. Wow, from a broken leg. Jeez. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, I can't even. Uh... Yeah. So, and you never know when, when you're not meant to be here. There's nothing you can do about it. So it's obviously meant to be here. Well, it seems it's weird to transition from that discussion, but you mentioned that you work for Bob Baffert. I'd say, I just got to ask the question, is it just that Bob gets the best horses now, or what does he do that's different from the others that allows him to get these horses to perform at the levels that they are? Because he is the number one trainer in the country, I think, beyond any doubt. Yeah, what, what he's accomplished in his career, it, it's off the chart. There's a lot of really good horsemen out there, period. I mean, I've worked with a lot of good horsemen. But he has an amazing gift to, he's always trying to learn more and improve on what he's already, he sees so much when he looks at a horse and when he's working with horses that he's training, he literally will adapt. Like some guys will have their training schedule written down and we're, today we're going to gallop, tomorrow we're going to work. And, and let's say it's work day, they're going to breeze furlongs. And, and when I started with Johnny Long, it would be five furlongs every five days. Anyway, and it would be a pretty much the same every time. But with Bob, he'll have it down. Let's say we're going to go five furlongs with Pioneer of the Nile, let's say. And I've worked, uh, you know, all the who's who's for him. I mean, even American Pharaoh. Wow. Yeah, so what, what happens with Bob, though, which I never experienced with anybody else, is that as I was coming out to the track with a horse, he would he's analyzing the race, when it's going to come up, when, you know, how does the horse look? How, how does he look to him? He's he's looking at the horse, and then he'll you know with we have a radio or walkie-talkie on me as I'd be riding for him to work his horses, and he would say, "Let's go four furlongs in 47," or let's you know he'll he'll adapt as we're on the track, and that's the thing that I found that he's got this amazing instinct with each and every individual, and and he's got hundreds of horses, but he's very very well informed with each one of these horses, even if, you know, when you have that many horses, you can't know them all, but he has amazing assistance and the team that he has put together. And, and most guys do that, that are big trainers. He just has an uncanny way of, of reading these horses. And that's what I felt when I, in what I felt with him. And I know I had, when I first started with him, people were like, well, he just comes rolling in at eight o'clock and how can he have an idea of what he's doing? Well, he knows everything. I mean, he's very, very, very well informed and simple thing. Like, I thought I told him to put a blinkers on that horse. You know, they're on everything. And then he's kind of like that with people. He, he just kind of has the all-around gift, and he's obviously the guy upstairs taking care of him because he's, he's been super blessed with all the success he's had. You know, good for him. I mean, he's, like I said, he's always, always trying to, to improve on what he does. So, and I think as any trick does that, so... Yeah, so what is the difference between him and the next guy? I'd say that. It's, I would say that he has a really good intuition. So, Joe, you mentioned working American Pharaoh. When you get on the back of a horse like American Pharaoh, do you know right away, holy cow, this, this, is, a, this is a different animal than any other one I've ridden? Do you, do you get that sense right away? 
Oh, absolutely. I only breathed him one time, and it's because Martin Garcia was out of town. But with him, he was filming me on his phone when I came back after the work, and he goes, what do you think of him? And I said, it feels like a lot of your good ones. For me and him, I've been on so many good horses for him, looking at Lucky, uh, Silver Charm, Pioneer of the Nile. I mean, in a lots of, even the list goes on of amazing horses. They all have all good horses. They have a, a different mindset and they're just more laid back. They're more receptive. Some of them are, are tricky. Obviously, you know, you're going to have some of that are a lot more high maintenance and tricky. But for the most part, a guy like American Pharaoh has just got a calm sense about them, bomb proof. You could throw a bomb off a roof and they just look and go, hmm, what was that? You know, and that's, and that's kind of the character that it takes to be great horse because they have to overcome, you know, like justify this year going to the Kentucky Derby after only three starts, taking on 150,000 people and all the, everything leading up to it, it's overwhelming for any horse. But when you have the mindset, the intelligence and the character that these horses have, they're on a different plane. They're, in a, they're, they're breathing different air, as some people say, and they are. They, they really are. They're just a whole different type of, of horse. So, Joe, um, you know, we're talking about famous horses. I know that you uh, and your grandfather were both movie stars in in movies about a famous horse, right? Yeah, and, that, and, and that's a funny story because, you know, as a kid growing up in Seattle, uh, my mom has her, her cabinet with the, you know, the glass in front with all the little knickknacks in there, and there was a picture of my mom sitting on Shirley Temple's lap. And Shirley Temple was around 23 or 4, at the time, beautiful young girl, and my mom was about five or six, and she was sitting on her lap, and they took a picture, and I asked, what are you doing here? And she said that my grandfather was filming Seabiscuit, the original Seabiscuit that they filmed in 1956, and the storyline was uh, a lot different that later on, but anyway, uh, my grandfather was a stunt rider in that, and, and you can actually see him at the end of the show in the paddock there and all, but on the offset, Shirley Temple babysat my mom in between shooting. Oh, wow. So the funny thing was that, that Laura Hillenbrandt wrote her version of Seabiscuit, and I got the book, and I, I couldn't put it down. Uh, the book was amazing, so I couldn't put it down. And my mom said, wouldn't that be amazing if, if they made a movie about that and you got to be in it? And I thought, yeah, you know what? It's just like things happen. And the next week, here comes Chris McCarron, and he goes, I'm, I'm coordinating this whole movie we're gonna we're gonna do a movie on this book seabiscuit and i want you to be gary stevens double oh wow yeah and i'm absolutely so i ended up being gary stevens double so i did a lot of the match race scenes i did the morning workout scenes where it was in the dark oh with the fire bell yeah 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 and the match race scenes we did at keeneland that were supposed to be at, at pimlico and it was here filmed at keeneland and it was 30 degrees and it, it was supposed to be a nice spring morning but it was really cold you know they they took really good care of us but the scenes down the backside and on the turn, some of those scenes are actually me doing that. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yes, yeah, so it, it was a lot of fun. I, I had a I had a really, really good experience with that whole Seabiscuit thing. And it, it is funny how that the, all those generations, they had two Seabiscuit movies. <laughs> My grandfather and I are both in it. Well, and I'll tell you one thing that rang true, too, and I, it will ring true for anyone who's been to Keeneland. I, I tell people over and over again. On a cold day, there's no colder place in America, it feels like, than Keeneland because the wind comes straight across from the other side of the track. It, you know, you wouldn't think central Kentucky. It, it can be as cold as any place else I've ever been, so I can't imagine having uh, how many takes you were doing there uh, in the cold and uh, in filming that match race. It had, that had to be a rough day. You know what? It, it really not. They gave us these jackets with, like, Eskimo jackets with fur around the head. 
and there was, you know, us jockeys was Chris McCarron was on War Admiral and Chris and Gary was, and then there was another guy named Alan Patterson. It was just us four guys. So they set us up really well, but the people that did the extra work, they were in the center field wearing dresses. The women were wearing dresses and they had to haul a few of them out of there. It was so darn cold. It's painful cold, (laughs) you know? Yeah, you know, it is. It is. It's hard to describe unless you've been there and you've been there. So you know what it's like. Hey, Joe, um, one of the things that we do is we have people talk about a big score that they had, right? What's a, you know, what's a great success that they had at the track. I'm sure you have one story that probably stands out more than any other about a race that you won or a horse that you rode. Can you tell us about the big score that you had? Yeah, I have so many. I mean, really, uh, that that just really hit me in the heart. But I was riding in Seattle at Long Acres around 1987, and I was thinking to myself, no, no real good horse has ever come out of Seattle. And I was just thinking, I need to get back down south, you know, because that's where all the good horses come from. Because I'd started there, but I, ended up, I went up there to ride in Seattle to, to gain more experience, and I did. I mean, I ended up winning over 500 races more on my list. But this one year, I ended up with a horse that I ended up winning two, three stakes up there in Seattle. He broke his maiden in the stakes race, and his name was Saratoga Passage. So they decided we're going to send this horse down to Santa Anita and run him in the Norfolk Stakes. And so I fly down, and I'm there the night before, and it pours down rain, and it's sloppy mud at Santa Anita. And this horse had never been in the mud, even though we came from Seattle. So, so my trainer, his name was Bob Leonard, Robert Leonard. He was an airline pilot for Northwest Orient. On his, that was his real job, but training was his hobby fun job. And so he tells me, you know, take him in the post grade without the pony, warm him up, and if he doesn't like it, just scratch him. And I said, all right. So I warmed him up, and I let him roll, and uh, I, I knew he was going to be okay, and I ended up winning that race. And it was the ultimate because it was a $200,000. It was actually 300 at the time, and he ended up winning the race, and he was just a very, very special horse. So that, that whole experience was amazing. My sister went with me, and we flew back on the plane, and she told one of the stewardesses that, that I won the steak race, and then the whole plane was, go- everybody was drinking champagne on the plane. It was wild. That's great. That's great. And that horse was headed for the Kentucky Derby, and he ended up being injured a month and a half away from the race, stress fracture, which he, you know, he was able to recover from later on. But it, I, I believe that he would have, Winning Color wins, Winning Colors won the, uh, the Derby that year. This horse would have run, I think, third in the race, because he was a really good horse, but he wasn't like that, but definitely would have been and that was one of my greatest thrills it was a great experience all the way until the the letdown and that was really painful because i i've had a couple horses that that were close to getting to the derby and this one i thought it really was legitimate but it was that was one of my great success stories well that's great company there winning colors and 49er you know we're in one two as you know in that derby and that's some pretty sturdy company right and the norfolk i believe is a you know the ultimate two-year-old race uh, on the now it's called something different i think it's called the front runner now maybe but at the time that and, and it still is in its current version that was the top race for two-year-olds kind of ending the the season right on the west coast yeah yeah and, and it led right into the breeders cup at that point they right. been running for a while but one of the horses that finished fourth a lucas horse and i don't even remember his name ended up coming back and winning the breeders cup but we were setting up for the derby so yeah that was a that was pretty exciting but there i've had so many just amazing stories of another, another one that kind of catches my mind is a horse named cielo Canosa. I came into the, the paddock at Del Mar for the last race of the day, and I was on a horse that should have been 99 to 1. He had eased his only one start. He ran in a little small track 
in Oregon, and the name escapes me right now, but it's a small track in Oregon, and he eased, and now he's in a, in the last race at Del Mar, his second start, and I'm thinking, what is this guy doing? And, and as I went to get on the horse, there was only a groom there. Nobody else was there. And, and the no groom, trainer, okay. Yeah, and the groom said, he, he's going to run good, and I said, oh, okay. But I knew right then, he won by five lengths, and he, he only paid, yeah, he only paid like $40, and I, and I thought, wow, that's crazy, and I never saw anybody and the next day, the steward said, well, who is this guy? And I said, I don't know. And it turns out they, they took the horse and left, and it was a, a big coup at the time, they said. So, oh, man. Yeah. Wow. I, I love the wow. story. Hopefully, the guy was uh, on the island somewhere with an umbrella drink. Yeah. <laughs> well, Joe, that's that, that some great stories there. And it's a really good perspective on the, the jockey's life, which I hope the, the listeners can, you know, get some insight into, you know, what it's like, these names on the form and, uh, you know, that we see very briefly in the silks ride by us, you know, get some insight into what it's like to be a jockey. So thanks, thanks really for sharing that with us. Appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. We really appreciate Joe joining us and sharing with us his journey as a jockey and his life since. Very informative and very entertaining. And as Joe said, I'm sure the owner of that mystery horse during his big score segment was able to enjoy at least one umbrella drink after hijacking the purse and stealing away in the dead of night. And now we'll turn to our guest handicapper segment. Chris Mello joined us last week and gave us what we thought was going to be a price horse and a horse we thought was going to benefit from an anticipated speed duel. Well, price was short, much shorter than we expected, and the pace duel never developed. It was more like a pace solo. Given that Chris's selection, Kentucky Wildcat was able to get up for a second while suffering a serious injury while no one pressed lone speed winner well-defined. You have to feel like the cat's chances went to the dogs with that combination of bad luck. But we're going to press onward and upward this week with guest handicapper Neil Duncliffe. You may know him better as the brother of a famous podcaster. Neil is going to give us his views on the Risen Star from the fairgrounds, part of an action-packed 12-race card in New Orleans this weekend. Neil began his handicapping career at the other fairgrounds, the hallowed Weymouth Fairgrounds, famous in the annals of chicanery. But we're going to talk about racing in the land of chicory coffee instead. All right, so Neil, you're, you've drawn the Risen Star here, named after a famous horse, the son of Secretariat, uh, won two of the Triple Crown races. Now this week at this race, named after him. So what, what do you like here? Well, I, I thought this was a really interesting race. I thought a lot of the horses just made me wonder what their next race would look like because I thought a lot of them were capable of being better than they've been. But I also have to say that the, it, the race is one that I, I can't pick out a horse that I say can say this is the one. So when I like a race but I don't really know where to start in terms of a horse, I generally just bet a five-horse exact a box for 20 bucks and just try to catch lightning. And then I, if I'm really feeling really good, I'll bet a 50-cent try box with the same five horses. So a total of spending $50 to play this race. So the first one I like is the number one, Pluker Parfait. He's, he had some bad luck in the Le Comte, but he's run really well everywhere else. He got beat by a neck at the, the jockey club at Churchill Downs in November in the slop. Um, so, it, so it looks like he's got heart. It looks like he's running and running hard trying to get there that one uh, that one kind of caught my eye too i like the inside out move right when they go from way outside to mm-hmm. back to the inside because you know uh well and now i'm looking at the trouble line <laughs> stumbled start bumped four path six pack at the quarter six path of the quarter pole yeah um it- he was still coming. I mean, he was passing horses, yeah. He did a lot more running than most, I would say. Yes. <laughs> wow. Wow. It was a race and a half. 
but the horse I think really has a ton of heart is this five Henley's Joy. He he has only run on the turf, and other than the Breeders' Cup Juvenile tur- Turf where he ran thirteen, he has five excellent races. But the thing that I noticed about the five races, other than the Breeders' Cup race, is that he has a surge at the end of every race. He in the last hundred yards. He's making up another big chunk of ground. Yeah. Uh, and I, I just haven't seen that pattern in a um, that consistent pattern. But he just looks like he's one of those horses that you might have to kill to beat him. Um, so I so I like him a lot. And I guess if I had to pick a favorite of my mm-hmm. own, I would say it, you know you wonder whether he can convert to dirt. But Mike Makers knows his stuff. Putting yeah. him on dirt, so I yeah. I say they want to take him on the Derby Trail is what they want to do. Mm. So, yep. Anyway, that's that's him. <laughs> this Lemonite number ten was, you know, in Shelby County, which is next to the county Churchill Downs is in, uh, at the start of this race at the Jockey Club, and in the slop, and he just kept coming and coming and coming. Yeah, he was gaining yeah, late. Sure did, he's yeah. been off since that time, but it looks like he's got a lot of heart. So I'm going to put him in. Then I was going to put Bafford in because you. I've gone broke betting against him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, but but the Baffert horse is out. <laughs> the Baffert horse is out. Uh, the fourteen you have to put him in because uh, he won the Lecomte and he has done very well. He looks like he's rested and ready to go. And he had trouble in in the Lecomte. He was outside and racing wide and still came mm-hmm. on and won it. And then the fifteen, who I understand just got in. Uh, he looks like a horse that could run a very good race, it seems to me. He also had a little bit of trouble, and the jockey's going to have to figure it out with him out there. But you know, out there, yeah. Uh, yeah. They paid. I just my you you pointed this out to me. <laughs> I'll give you credit here. They paid two point six million for this horse. So <laughs> yeah, he must be a lot of horse, at least in the sales ring. There's going to be something there, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Well, this year maybe just in the sales ring. It's yeah. it's interesting that Santana rode both of them in their last race, and he goes on the he's named on the AE, but not on the you know the main body entry. I thought I thought that was kind of interesting because I'm like you. I was looking at Limonite thinking, oh, you know, I kind of like Limonite here. Limonite looks pretty good. Oh, I see. Yes, yeah. Santana rode him. Yeah, I yeah. see that. I, I, there's nothing wrong with Brian Hernandez. He's hitting at 38 percent. But Santana, I think it's pretty well acknowledged is Asmussen's main guy, mm-hmm. and he puts him on the the 15. I I, I was curious to see if you were going to say anything about. Henley's joy because the like you said is he going to handle the dirt who knows but Mike Maker I don't think he enters horses just to you know hey maybe he can maybe he can I got to believe that he's looked at something and said this horse can be equally he can be like Animal Kingdom right he can be equally as effective on yeah on dirt as or as on grass or on synthetics and you know the one thing I would say that's in his favor now he did not have a great Breeders' Cup race tour. Another thing that's in his favor, he's been racing in stakes company. You know, yes. I mean, he he has been he he's been racing against proven horses. Yeah, is is well, he's probably not the top money earner in the field, right? Because I'll bet War. Of, well, he actually he might be. I'm just scrolling through here. I believe he is the top money earner in the field, and it is amazing sometimes mm-hmm. how often a somewhat meaningful statistic gets ignored, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> He made more money than anybody else. Is he any good? Right. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, uh, he's listed at ten to one. I can't believe he's going to go off at that. But I hope he's going off at seven or eight to one. And you know, if the favorite runs out and another 
you know, eight or ten or twelve to one horse run, then you get a very nice exacto. There's, there's a nice price right there. You know, Neil, one of the other things that struck me about this race, it's I, I suppose seven has Channing Hill, and that that horse is going to go no matter what. It it. it doesn't look like there's a ton of speed in this. I, I think the seven is probably going to go for sure. Maybe the three just you know laid off and going to be keyed up a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. But you know it's it's a, it's a mile and a sixteenth, and 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 the seven sure has not carried his speed. Uh, he hasn't been able to carry his speed a mile and seventy. So to bet on him to carry a mile and a sixteenth, and I don't mm-hmm. know. But you know when you look at some of those running lines like Pluka Perfect. Perfect. I don't know if I'm saying that right or not. Um, would certainly seem to benefit from the pace. And, yeah. and the other, you know, that the the Asp- the outside Asmussen runner, he could, you know, potentially sit kind of close to the pace, I guess, right? And 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 be there at the end. Uh, yeah, I, I wonder what the 14 War of Will is going to do. Yeah, I mean, because because he likes to go to the front. Yep. And he's way out there. So yes, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, you do. That that's a tough. I mean, actually, you look at those running lines. He he's probably gonna go right. So, you know, does that mean that the fifteen is able to to get over a little bit, maybe? Uh, you know, and and save a little ground. I'm not sure how long the run is into the first turn at fairgrounds. At fairgrounds in a mile and a sixteenth. It's you know, candidly a track with which I am less familiar. Well, War Will, who won the Lecompte, um, was racing in the four and five path anyway. Uh, yep. Yep. around the first turn and three and four wide around the second turn. So, so he he practiced running wide in his last race <laughs> <laughs> and did all right. Yeah. Well, you know, actually, it's an interesting point. You mentioned that on the, you know, in the maiden special that he won, he was ninth out of 11. Uh, he, he made like he made like running outside of horses better. And that does happen sometimes, right? Some horses like running outside of horses more than they like running inside right. of horses. I mean, it might actually just, just, just be to his benefit. It's an interesting race for sure. It, it's a great race to see a full field in too, right? I mean, that's, yeah. that's exciting. That's exciting. And I think that's a race where when you get a full field like that, right, you know, just boxing a few contenders, it's, it's not a bad bet, you know? I mean, especially when it's hard to separate, you know, this horse yeah. from that horse, right? And as I, as I say, the the thing that interests me about it is a lot of these horses really looked interested in running, mm-hmm. and and so you say, well, you know, what could happen here? This, you don't know, and and there's a lot of good breeding in the race. I mean, there's a uh, there's a tappet or two in here. There's plenty of good breeding. So yeah, I've I see plenty of six figure sale numbers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, and in one seven figure sale number, but uh, you know that. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, this is a, a, a really interesting race, and I was wondering what you would do with Henley's Joy too, because that's that's the wild card here, right? Yeah, I think so. But you know, he gets, you know, to his credit, right? <clears throat> He's a little bit more inside. Gets Manny Franco, who is Manny is a, I think, less well-known jockey outside of New York. But I would say of all the young jockeys in New York, he's probably come on the most in the last two years. Um, really? Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's not, he's not a bad selection at all to have on the, have on the horse because Gaffleone goes to, well, Gaffleone was on the 14 last time out, right? so he's not... Yeah, so he's, he's, not, he's not jumping off that one. Um, yeah, no, look, it, it's an interesting race. I like to pick, and it should be it should be a lot of fun to watch. I think so, too. Right. And we need to get so. off the Shania here, so let's let's get let's get that five home. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, that's going to do it for another edition of Can Do, the podcast about all things horse racing. 
We're going to take a break next week so we can finalize our very special two-part look back at long-departed Long Acres race course in Seattle, Washington. Join us then. In the meantime, good luck with your plays this weekend, and may the horse be with you.